waiting for me with sharp tooth and bloody claw. Top it all off, we had to bring our youngest daughter three days ago to college. Our youngest daughter to college. And we left her there with her dear friend Cora in the crazy, violent, dangerous city of Chicago. We left her there. My youngest daughter. And we return home to a dreadfully quiet house with a fat dog sleeping in the living room. It's, a, it's, the bottom of the, it's the bottom of the valley. It's the bottom of the valley. The mountaintop is over, and we are now trudging through the thick mud of everyday normal life. Dun, 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 dun. That's how I feel. It's terrible. Missy, it's terrible. It's terrible. What's that? I'll love it. I will love the, the empty nest. It's because you guys go hiking all the time. I don't have the endurance to do that. Well, today in Matthew chapter 8, we're going to continue our study in the book of Matthew. We find ourselves no longer on the mountain with Jesus. We're not listening anymore to a sublime magnum opus, the Sermon on the Mount. No, it's over. And his disciples, along with him, trudge back down the valley into everyday life. And I'll tell you, we're going to find in this valley, like all of our valleys, it's full of dark shadows, deep sorrows, and crushing reality. The excitement's over. Back to the grind. That's what we find ourselves in. Actually, the first sermon, Boyd Kaler said, that was the most depressing sermon you ever gave in your life. You'll love this sermon. It's not depressing. It's real. We live in the valley. But before you get doom and gloom and depressed like Boyd did, I want you to realize there's something different about this valley. In chapter 8, we're going to see the disciples are not abandoned to themselves. Nope, somebody's with them. Somebody is with them that will continue to bring the joy that they experience on the mountaintop, even in the darkest of situations. The joy is still there. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is always shining. In fact, John 1.5 says, the light shines in the darkness. And that's the point. Sometimes he will lead us in the valley so we'll see just how bright his light actually is. And you're going to see in this passage, it is bright. So if you can, follow along with me. John, uh, Matthew 8, starting in verse 1 through 17. Here's what it says. When he came down from the mountain... Great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest. And offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and I will heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority. Soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. 
When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus says, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He's the light that shines in the darkness. And the title of this message is Down in the Valley. That's how to live down in the valley. And what we're going to see in this passage is Jesus and the disciples are going to show you what could happen to your life. Begins in verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So the big event is over. The Sermon on the Mount is over. The eloquence of Jesus is soaring rhetoric is now a faded memory. And Matthew brings us back into the hustle and bustle and monotony of everyday living. A needy crowd is clamoring. They all want his attention. I need, I need, I need. People are needy. The valley, the pace of life in the valley is relentless. It never stops. There's always needs. If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. If you live in a community, you know what I'm talking about. If you go to church, you know what I'm talking about. If you just have a beating heart and you're on this earth, you know what I'm talking about. We live in the valley most of our lives. In this section, what we just read, Matthew is going to share four very strategic stories. And I think they're for very important reason or for our benefit. Each story is, is Jesus the Messiah isn't going to rescue the Jews in these stories. He's going to the broken and the downtrodden. He's reaching out to the tired and weary and the lost and forgotten. In this section, he's going to heal a leper, a Gentile servant, a woman. That's a big deal for a woman to get pressed back in the day. And he's going to take care of the demon-possessed. Jesus came to rescue all of us, including you. And I believe Matthew picked these stories because they typify four very common valleys we find ourselves struggling in, or even some of us are stuck in. And by, by valley, I just want to take a side note, I'm referring to that place where your life is crushing. It's heartbreaking. You feel lost sometimes and very alone. And if there's no one to rescue you, there's no hero that shows up, you're not sure you're going to make it. You're not sure you're going to be able to go on. And what we're going to find is Jesus is going to enter into these four valleys to rescue. The first valley, I'm calling the valley of sin. Look at verse 2. And behold, so they come down the mountain, and right when they come down the mountain, it's like, behold, here he is. A leper came to him and knelt before him. A desperate man 
who's diseased from head to toe. In biblical teaching, leprosy is exclusively used as a metaphor for sin. It's often used as a metaphor for sin. Because in that time, they had no penicillin, they had no antibiotics, and this disease was bad, almost incurable. It disfigures and destroys the beauty of a person. Like it starts with your extremities. The nerve cells die so you can't feel any pain. And if you get a splinter, you get an infection, and an infection turns to gangrene. So you start with the toes and the fingers and the nose. And if you get a piece of sand in your eye, well, it might get scratched, and that too would get infected, but you wouldn't feel it. And so you lose your sight. A lot of blind lepers. And then you get these sores where you scratch your sin and they are open wounds. Skin dies and pus comes out and so it's smelly and stinky. And you are offensive. In other words, if you had leprosy, you didn't need to get a PCR test to see if you were diseased or not. The community was terrified of it. They didn't want it to spread. As a result, Leviticus 13, 4 and 45 to 46, the leper had to have his hair unkept, gnarly, probably like a dreadlock look. Couldn't cut it. It was filthy for a reason, to warn people to stay away. They had to wear torn, dirty clothes. They had to cover their lower parts of their face with a scarf. And if they got close to somebody, they had to cry out in their loudest voice, Unclean! Unclean! They had to be separated from their family. They had to live in their own little embankment outside of the community. A person with leprosy was in bad shape. They're considered unclean. One writer said if a person had a bad case of leprosy, finding a cure for it was next to impossible. So being healed of leprosy is like being healed from blindness. A miracle of the highest degree. But I would say this, as a metaphor, exactly like leprosy, sin does the same thing to us. It disfigures and destroys who we are. Sometimes if you sin long enough, it will affect you physically. You'll see it. But it instantly affects you inside, your character. It takes the way virtue and goodness and quickly tarnishes it and turns you into somebody that is dark. Sin spreads. Just like leprosy, once you catch it, it doesn't just go away easily. In fact, it's addictive. And in order to please your flesh, you need to increase the consumption of the sin, but it will still never satisfy. And sin makes us unclean, specifically in the sight of God. It says in Habakkuk chapter 1, God is so pure, he cannot look upon your iniquity. He can't. So he distances himself. Sometimes it feels like he doesn't care about you, but it's sin that separates you from God. Actually, it alienates you from other people. Especially if you're caught in sin, you'll start to feel like you are an outcast, like a leper. Nobody cares about me. I'm miserable. Nobody understands me. And if you're really caught in sin, there will be this sense of dread and condemnation that darkens your heart. Feels like there's no way out. It is a terrible valley to be caught in. I, I remember I was caught in it 
for a long time. I felt lost. I felt alone. I felt like I really couldn't tell anybody what I was going through. And honestly, I felt like God wanted nothing to do with me. I was convinced of it. And so, to a degree, I, I was mad at God. But really, it was my fault, but I blamed Him. Sin does that to you. My question is, have you ever been there, and are you there now? Are you caught in this valley, and you feel like there's no way out? If you are, never forget this. The light shines in the darkness. That's the intention of it. In fact, the light's objective is to expose the darkness so you know that you need to be healed. Keep reading. Watch what this leper does. He's so desperate. It says in verse 2, he knelt. Kneeling is a gesture that shows submission and it shows that the person you're kneeling to has authority. He is owed respect. This leper kneeled to Jesus. Another way we can say is this is confession. In order to be cleansed of leprosy, or in order to be cleansed of sin, you first need to admit it. And you need to admit it's bad. Sadly, many sinners in our, in our culture are not willing to admit it. They don't anymore. In fact, we live in a day and age where we actually justify sin, saying that's just who they are. No, that's sin. That's sin. And if you want to be healed, I mean really want to be healed, you need to bow your knee to Jesus and plead with him like this leper to be made clean. Verse 3, he says actually in verse 2, Lord, Master, if you will, you can make me clean. The leper knew where to go. The leper knew where to go. And he was so desperate, he was willing to, to do anything Jesus said. And so Jesus, in verse 3, it says he stretched out his hand and he touched him. Jesus isn't scared of your mess. He will get involved right in the center of it. In fact, you weren't allowed to touch a leper, but Jesus touched him. Can you imagine what that meant to that leper? When Jesus entered my darkness... I knew he cared about me. He is willing. There's a very interesting statement. It says in verse 3, Jesus doesn't say the Father is willing to heal you. He says, I am willing to heal you. In other words, Jesus is taking on full authority that the Father gave him. Jesus is the one who can cleanse our sins. And then after he does that, he will restore us back to the community. That's what verse 4 is all about. Go show yourself to the priest, and then the priest will have you offer sacrifices of cleansing, which allows you to come back in. When Jesus heals you of sin, you can come back. You're allowed full access to him. Listen to how Colossian puts it. In you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, the idea of just your flesh is like a leprous, rotted flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. All. That word all, that means everything you've done in the past. 
that means everything you've done today and everything you're going to do in the future. Some people really believe Jesus only forgives those sins that you confess in the past. Here's a question for you. When this says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So when did he nail your sins to the cross? 2,000 years ago. How many of those sins did you commit 2,000 years ago? Well, you weren't alive yet. So he forgave all your sins before you even were alive? Yes. So he forgave all of your sins in the future, even the ones you're going to commit tomorrow. So when you accept Christ, you're completely clean. Do you understand that? Some people believe when you accept Christ, but what if I sin again? When you accept Christ, he paid for all of them. He nailed it to the cross 2,000 years ago. They're done. If, you don't, if, if you, that's all you get out of this, that's worth, that's worth everything. It's called justification by faith. Greatest gift he can ever give you in that valley of sin. Next valley is the valley of doubt. This is a very serious valley in the sense of if we're ever going to live a victorious Christian life, a joy-filled life, we have to learn how to get past doubt. Specifically doubt about how he views me. And when I get in terrible trouble, will he rescue me? Look at verse 5. It's a story of a centurion. It's taken place in the city of Capernaum. So right outside of Galilee, the city of Capernaum. A centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. So what's a centurion? Leader of a hundred uh, basically, a centurion is a leader of a hundred men, a Roman soldier. He's like a, he's like a lieutenant. And he uh, appealed to Jesus, the Jew. You don't do that. A Roman doesn't go to a Jew, especially a Roman soldier. The Jews are, you know, kind of like offensive. But he goes to Jesus, and he calls him Lord. And he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So some uh, Bible teachers think this might be a son. Others, maybe a guy in his unit, could be his own personal servant. Whatever the case is, he's in bad shape. He's paralyzed, and he's suffering. And so the centurion says to Jesus in verse 7, um, or Jesus said to the centurion, I'll come, I'll come over and I'll heal him. The centurion played, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Like, no, you don't need to come over. Just say the word. It's all you got to do. He'll be healed. And the reason I know this is because I'm a general myself. I'm a man of authority, and people are underneath me. In the same way, Jesus, you're a man of authority. Say the word. He'll be healed. This centurion was distressed, and he knew he needed somebody stronger to rescue him. He's so desperate, he's so desperate, he's willing to go out of his cultural comfort zone and come to Jesus. Probably embarrassing for him. Romans weren't supposed to do that. As I read this story, there's two, what I would call, roadblocks that happen in our heart when we have doubt. And to me, I'm saying doubt means do I really believe God will answer prayer? And the first one is this. I have questions about his ability to bridge the gap. Here, you know, like Jesus, he healed the leper by touching him. Here, he's just going to utter a word. Jesus is just going to utter a word and a guy's going to be healed? Doesn't he need to be there physically? Can, 
you know, in my own life, can God real, really answer my prayers? Because I don't see them. A lot of times I'm in my room and I'll be praying. And have you ever been in a small room and you, you talk and then the echo dies down and it's silent again? feels a lot of times when I pray, does he really hear me? I mean, he's in heaven. He's, isn't he some old man in a cabin that's far away that could care less about me? Or can he bridge the gap from heaven to where I'm at and answer my prayer right now? There's a lot of doubt there. Maybe when Jesus was around, miracles and prayers were answered, but they're not meant for 2021, are they? And I would say the second barrier to doubt is, am I really allowed in? Like here we have a Gentile. Jesus was the Messiah, the Jewish king. That's what Messiah means, the anointed one. And he came for the Jews, right? What is he doing with a Roman? Does a Roman really have access to Jesus? The man's a Gentile. He should not presume upon this Jew. He shouldn't have access to God's grace and mercy. Read the Old Testament. Same for me. Who am I that I would be arrogant enough to think that the God who created the universe, who's running the universe, all of the important things right now, cares about somebody from a tiny town in Michigan? Do I really have access to God? Will he really come to me when I need him most? Have you ever wondered those two questions? Have you ever been there? You wonder if God really hears you and you really wonder if God lets you in. Because if God really knew you, really knows what goes on in your heart, I'm not sure. Did you know God really knows you? He knows every thought that you're going to think before you think it. Read Psalm 139. If you don't think God knows you, read Psalm 139. He knows when I sit and when I stand. He knows my thoughts from afar. He knows where I go to sleep. He knows where I rise up. He knows every day that he's prepared for me. Every day. They're written in his book. So he knows you. But if that's where you're at right now and you're struggling with these doubts, never forget this. The light shines. The light shines. And by the word shines, means it's, it's constantly at work. He's constantly alive. He's always watching. I, I used to, I probably told you a story before, but my dad was a salesman, and a lot of his job was down home. He had this little office in the basement of our house. We had this house in Cleveland where it was all studded in the basement, and it wasn't finished, but he finished this little tiny office, and he had this door that was thick. He found this really thick door, and it had a window, and you had to knock on it if you wanted to talk to your dad. And a lot of times, my dad would be on the, on the phone with his clients, and I'd go down in the, the basement to ask him something, and i look in, and I can see it's not the time. My dad's busy. I'm not going to... He's got business, so I wouldn't bug him. I wouldn't bother him. I'd wait till he'd come up. But did you know when God goes into his office, I'm his business? You're his business? He's never busy because you're, you are what he's thinking about. 
He shines. Some people say, but, but I don't see him. It's kind of like a cloudy day. Is the sun still there? Yep. Same thing. Even when I'm in the house, the sun's still out there shining. So keep praying. Hebrews 11.6 puts it like this. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Here's what's interesting. Look at verse, um, verse 10. When Jesus heard this from the centurion, he marveled. This is the only time this word's used about Jesus considering men. He marveled at a Roman man because the Roman man's the only one that got it. The Roman centurion got it. It's faith. And it's trusting implicitly that he's not, a, not only able, but he listens. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please him. Anyone that comes to him must, number one, believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He's able. You have access. And then he goes on, he goes, this guy's faith is incredible. So much so that, you know, he goes into this diatribe about the lost people of Israel that they don't exercise faith, but this Gentile does. And because the Gentile does, he's going to be sitting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob where a lot of religious people, they're going to be left out because they think it's all about what they do and not about faith. So you could say it like this. You know what moves God? It's not the group that a person belongs to, the church that a person belongs to, how good a person is, or even how strong they are. He marvels at people who trust in him. There's another valley, and this is an interesting one. Might not seem like much. I call it the valley of difficulty. It's verses 14 and 15. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. There, this is told in the book of Mark and also in the book of Luke. And looking over it, that's all it says. She's just sick with a fever. It doesn't say she's paralyzed. It doesn't say that she has leprosy. It says she's just sick. That's it. Just with a fever. Really nothing major. It's an everyday common occurrence for most of us. We either are sick or something bad happens. I call this the normal problems of life. Derek Max would call this another pain in the hind end. He says that all the time. Life's hard. Life is hard. And if we are honest, just when things seem to be going right, something happens to ruin it. You could say it like this. It just seems like life rarely ever goes my way. I must tell you, these small nagging things of life, these difficulties, they're the things that actually make me the most miserable. The massive things, they don't happen that often, but difficulties, they just always seem to pop up just at the wrong time, always. Can't I have one day, one day, one day where I'm not harassed by another bad fear-mongering headline? Oh, no! The world's going to end again. Oh, here we go again. I'm so tired of it. Did you ever feel like your car's always having trouble? Like, like one of the good things about my daughter being in college, it seems like last year when she's a senior, she'd take the car to school. She'd call me every other day with a car problem. Dad, the car's not working. I think the engine's going to blow up. Chaz, the engine's not going to blow up. What happened? I don't know. I'm on the side of the road. 
can you come help me? Oh, it's probably Cora. She did it. It's Cora's fault. It's on my car always falling apart. Drives me crazy. Or your kid has a cavity in her tooth just at the wrong time. I don't, does it seem to you that dentists have gotten a lot more expensive? I don't know. That's just me. If you're a dentist, I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend you. But I, back in the day when I'd get cavity, they'd you know, charge me 10 bucks for a filling. It's because they never gave me Novocaine and they'd just shoot it in there. You know, now it's like, Take out a mortgage for filling. Anyhow, small things have a way of just depressing you. Just when I want to take a break, on a sunny Saturday, somebody calls and says, can you help? As they say, one mosquito bite is no big deal, but a thousand can kill you. Does God care about the small things? Does he care about little old me? Or, have you been there? I'm sure that many of you are there right now. If you are, if you're there, you're just kind of tired of the incidentals that are tearing you apart. Never forget this. The light shines in the darkness. It's still shining. Even on that little wayside flower by the road that wasn't intended, but it, you know those little purple flowers, the sun even shines on them. The same way, this little wayside flower, the Son of God, shines on me. He cares about me. He cares about you. Even the smallest of problems that don't seem like they are much, they matter to him. I was thinking about often when my daughter Jazz would ask for the stupidest things, you know, Dad, I, I can't untie my shoe, or I got a blister in my finger, can you help? Yeah. I'm your dad. I'd love to. There's one more valley. This valley, I hate to say it is true. It's mysterious, and it's the most terrifying of all. It's the valley of devils. In verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. Oppressed. That's an emotional heaviness, the darkness, the depression, the despair. He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And there's, some scholars say this idea, those who were sick also were oppressed. There was a demonic sickness. But it's oppression. There's a real realm out there where spirits and demons fight. Where angels and demons fight. There is a spiritual realm. And that spiritual realm wants to shipwreck your faith. Ephesians 6, 10-12 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's a strange phrase, schemes of the devil. That means planned way to defeat you. In fact, the devil is not an infinite creature. Jesus is infinite. God is infinite. It means they all, all the knowledge they have, they have an infinite amount of knowledge. A finite creature continues to learn. They don't have an infinite knowledge. But Satan's smart, and he's been studying you, and he's scheming against you to get you to fall. And so Paul says, put on a whole armor of God. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And you don't want to mess around with this valley. The devil is crafty and his goal is despair. 
And we have told ourselves, we can fight him. No, you can't. You can't outwit him. You can have, try to get enough, read enough books, do enough counseling, but no, we need to run to God. It's strange. There will be times when anxiety will just take over you. It comes out of nowhere. Or fear, it just is like a heavy cloud and you don't know why, but you're terrified. Run to Jesus because He's there. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been where you're so overwhelmed with anxiety you don't know what to do? Look what verse 16 says. When you're there, it says that evening they brought to Him many who were oppressed by demons. And He cast out the spirits Coolest three words. With a word. That's all he needed. His word is our battle plan. It's our sword. It's double-edged. Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 was in the desert being tempted by the devil. What did he use? The word. So hide it in your hearts. Know the word so much so that when that day of oppression occurs... It just spills out of you and it cleanses your brain and it gives you hope and trust. Because I'll tell you, the light shines in the darkness. Jared, I was thinking about it actually. What Do you remember that gift that was given to uh, Samwise in the Lord of the Rings? Actually, it was given to Frodo. What was the gift? Yeah, what was it called? What is it called? He's nerdy on the Lord of the Rings stuff. He lives, he lived on Bag End, for crying out loud. So there's this like when that spider came and given that gift of a light and he put it right in the darkest of night and that spider went away. In the same way, when you are in the darkest of dark, shine the light, shine the light, shine the light. So the question is, which valley are you in right now? Because honestly, sometimes I think God strategically puts you in a valley. Because remember, it's in the darkness when the light really shines. What valley are you in? And run to Him. This morning, truthfully, when I woke up, mornings are my bad time. When I get up in the morning, I have a lot of, sometimes anxiety. It's kind of been a part of me most of my life. I can remember in college, I'd get up early, and I would just be overwhelmed with, I'm unable I'm, um, I don't have the strength. I'm not capable. You, it's just like an overwhelming feeling. Even this morning, I'm like, I don't know what I have to offer this church. I don't know. God, you're going to have to help me. And then instantly this came to my mind. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. If you go down to Psalm 23, he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the midst of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And then it ends like this. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I'm just telling you right away, I'm just like, I can do it. I can do it. Which valley are you in? Because the light longs to shine in your darkness.
Let's pray. Father, we, um, we're grateful. We're always amazed. I'm, I'm always amazed at how you show up exactly at the right time. I thank you for Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that it's impossible to please you without faith and that if I believe you exist and you reward those who earnestly seek you, you will arrive and you do every time. Thank you, God, for this morning. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. 